Trump got elected in November 2016, and um, I am really fascinated by what happened in Alabama yesterday and what the implications might be. So I have a special guest for us. Here we are a day after a rather momentous election in Alabama. We can say Alabama, but the effects of it are going to be uh, national and um, be very interesting to see the regional impact. And um, I have Michael Baychok with me from Orso Baychok, which is a political media firm based out of Baton Rouge and um, been around forever <laughs> from, from uh, it's in the family, been going for how many years, Michael? Well, it's, uh, I've been in the business uh, professionally since 1987. If you can, I can't hardly believe that myself, so I, I can't imagine someone else could believe that. But my father, of course, was involved in politics uh, in the early 70s, so it's, been, it's a family business, and my son is also in the business, so uh, another generation of Baychocks. Uh, are going to be campaigning for hopefully another 20 or something, 20 or so years. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, so uh, it's, it's uh, you know, I watched it until the wee hours last night, so um, I'm still speaking English, so that's something. But <laughs> um, it was hard to uh, let go because, of course, there was that last-minute little um, uh, 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 totally expected challenge to the results and wanting to do the recount and so on. Well, we saw how that worked out locally with a, one of our um, municipal races. Um, it, it's just a gesture. I don't think there's any chance that there's any turnaround on this. But um, it, it, even if there were, I mean, the fact that the Democrat did as well is, of course, it's, it's a milestone. And I'd, I'd like your interpretation of what you think that milestone is. Well, it's certainly uh, a milestone because they, Alabama has not elected a statewide Democrat or, and certainly a United States senator in 25-plus years. Uh, it's a milestone uh, because very few southern states have uh, elected Democrats in the past, I'd say, four election cycles, uh, the one exception being Louisiana in 2015 with John Bell Edwards, um, which faced facing a similar, although not necessarily uh, exactly similar situation against somebody who was involved with some allegations of, you know, uh, sexual allegations. So it's a milestone in that sense. Um, it's also a milestone when you look at it as on a national basis. It's just a continuing uh, example of what has happened since Trump was elected. Um, Democrats are winning races in places where they have never won races before, and that's Virginia, where we've won a lot of races, but we certainly had a tsunami wave in the legislature. Oklahoma, um, you know, now Alabama. So, it, you know, it, it just, it's a story that, that I think the only first few chapters are being written, and I'm really looking forward to 2018 because I, we work all over the country. Uh, we actually worked in the Alabama race. Um, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see this wave uh, cresting yet. I think there's definitely a, a wave of support for Democrats across the country, and I'm, I'm hopeful that you know it, it, it reaches Louisiana. So that's actually what I'm most curious about because, um, you know, there's been such a um, dearth, a drought for a few decades now in any kind of really – um, competition between uh, the parties. We, we've had to live with 
um, essentially one-party rule in Louisiana, certainly, and that's also obviously true in, in Alabama and other southern states. So um, is there any chance that this is an icebreaker now for um, seeing more competition and an opportunity for uh, Democrats to take on Republicans, which I, I have to say, I don't really understand state politics well enough. I haven't been that engrossed in politics. I've been more engrossed in economic development and cultural development, which is, there's political implications there too, but I, I'm not sure I really understand what's been going on, but one thing that's very clear is that I don't think we've been in competition. Well, that's certainly true, and I think, you know, I was hopeful that John Bell Edwards' election uh, is, would and is going to change the fact that we will have more competitive races at every level uh, in 2019. But hopefully that also means 20, 2018, uh, because, you know, we'll have congressional races in 2018, and we'll have the odd state legislative special election and judicial election. So... I feel in Louisiana already that there is a, you know, again, there's a growing excitement. We are not immune to the to what's going on around us. Um, and I think for certain that in 2018 and hopefully again in 2019 that we're going to see Democrats challenging Republicans in places where, you know, we never would have thought that we could even mount a campaign, and we're going to have credible candidates. There's no doubt about that. I mean, so so Louisiana is... It's just going to, you know, let pass by, there's no doubt. So, you know, uh, on the other hand, I have to tell you that my initial take, I was a little bit worried that the only reason this really happened, and, uh, and you tell me I'm wrong in saying that a key factor in, the, in uh, Edwards' race was the fact that the, the other candidate had a sex scandal involved. So, in, in uh, obviously in Alabama, it was it was a pedophilic allegations that um, I, I have little doubt are going to turn out to be uh, fact. And in Louisiana, Vitter um, had of course been exposed for um, his use of a, of a of a prostitution ring. So, are these just anomalies that result from the? Um, the sex scandals in the lives of these competing guys. So when we have, you know, um, uh, Republicans who don't carry that baggage, um, are, are, do we still have a fighting chance? So your question is basically if David Vitter, you know, hadn't visited prostitutes and committed a serious sin, would John Bell Edwards have beaten him? I mean, I think we can pretty much answer that question and say, you know, it, <laughs> probably not. But he did, and that was his, that was his particular uh, flaw and his particular weakness. And I think the weakness that now Republicans are carrying with them uh, will be partially due to uh, the Roy Moores of the world, who the Republican Party and, you know, the leader of the Republican Party has endorsed, did endorse, campaigned for. They're going to carry that as a badge. Uh, and, you know, like a John Kennedy, who, who never wavered in his support, of Roy Moore, he's going to carry that, and that's going to be something that he's going to have to answer to. But beyond that, what the Republican Party is being defined as is not something that voters are taking a liking to. Their new tax plan is full, full of special carve-outs for corporations, for rich people, for golf course owners. 
you know, when you cut a, a teacher who, cut, you know, you're saying that you're getting rid of her tax exempt. Uh, tax exemptions for supplies that she buys for classrooms, but you're giving a golf course owner, you know, basically new money. Those are things Republicans are going to have to answer to. And whether or not they have a sex scandal in their background, those things are very important to voters. Really, 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 Michael, because I I, I almost, I've had a, uh, so far there's been so much, um, I don't know whether it's ignorance or not paying attention or giving those issues a pass to deal with. Um, I I, want to quote uh, the young man who is the engineer here um, who uh, told me Kendall Williams uh, is a sound engineer. He said, you know, he doesn't think because I asked him, is this was this a racial issue? Is it is it race that? has people so adamantly supporting a guy who's so bad he's a pedophile, but as the governor of Alabama said, a pedophile is better than a Democrat. He said, you know, I don't really think it's about black and white. He says, I think it's about red and blue. And it's about red, which is power and money, and blue, which is less so. Um, So, you know, I just, I think whether... People are uh, by the tax plan or they just don't really get it or understand what's in it. Somehow, I don't think that that's the deciding factor. In fact, that brings me to a question that I just can't answer. Why is abortion such an important political issue? I understand why it's a religious issue. Everybody has their right to think about life and and what's important in protecting it which by the way i think encompasses teenage girls but um what what is it about abortion that makes that such an overweening issue that it determines that people can actually vote for in high numbers those people who believe and are concerned about abortion for a pedophile well let's see i mean in alabama 55 percent exit polls believe that uh, abortion should be illegal. And yet Doug Jones is pro-choice. And yet Doug Jones was elected. So I I don't think it's that big of an issue. I mean, it certainly didn't determine the outcome of that race because if 55% of the people believe that abortion should be illegal, yet 50% of the people voted for Doug Jones knowing he was pro-choice, then it really, it must not have been that big of a factor to him. I'll also say that uh, 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 there's a huge generational difference um, on that issue, as as well as on the issue of uh, uh, sexual orientation and transgender. You know, Roy Moore won 65-plus uh, voters by 14 points. He lost voters under 65 by 9 points. I mean, there, you know, that the abortion issue is something that is just, it's, it's going to be, it's phasing out. It's just phasing out. It's not going to be important because it's not important to younger voters. They're beyond that. They're beyond the sexual orientation issue as well. So if you're a Republican who is uh, uh, anti-choice um, and you're anti-LGBT, you're going to face you know you're you're going to face some serious issues with voters because that's not how they think these days. Now look, we live in Louisiana. I mean, we're a conservative state. And the lines in these, you know, congressional districts and state representative districts have been drawn to favor, you know, uh, the more conservative and also the more liberal voters. That's got to change, too. 
and it will, but it's not going to happen in, you know, in the special election for, you know, uh, state representative in New Orleans uh, in March, you know, but it takes time. And I, I do, I truly believe that, you know, the, the, that particular issue, abortion, is just not going to be a factor uh, as much as it was in the past. It certainly wasn't uh, in the Alabama race. Well, so um, that actually raises another issue that I've been really curious about because, you know, I, I make an effort every election cycle to get out the vote amongst uh, kind of the world that I live in, the creatives, many of whom are younger, and everybody keeps telling me, oh, those young people, they're not voting. And so I'm wondering what's going on in that uh, context, the, the percentage of people, of younger people who are voting, which I assume is going to go up, but it, it, is it there yet? Well, it's their participation in the special elections and the elections in New Jersey and Virginia over the past six months has increased. I mean, that is one thing that demographically we've seen in every state, that younger people who normally, and you're right, they normally don't participate in elections at the level that I would say older people, uh, you know, 50 plus, I'll call myself older, participate in. But those folks, those younger people have been participating at a much higher rate. And I just think it's because, you know, they finally figured out that if they don't, the older folks who they don't who they don't trust, and the older folks who they don't uh, share the same values or the same positions on issues with, are ruining their lives. And so I'm hope I'm again I'm I'm very hopeful and optimistic that you know we'll get a bigger influx of younger voters in not only elections in Louisiana but elections across across the country. You know, you made a statement just a little uh, bit before the question of the younger voters. That we, that we, Louisiana, we're a conservative state. When, when I first came to Louisiana in the 70s, I had the impression that Louisiana was one of the least conservative states in the South. We seemed to be somewhat pro-union. We had a lot of Democrats out there. It was competitive. What, what happened, A, and B, what does conservative really mean and are we is are, are we is the state really conservative that's my part one and then the second question i have is i keep asking myself how can i communicate with conservatives that opens their minds up to um, a more nuanced sense of how government can work in partnership with people rather than being anti-government those are great questions. I'll, I, I would leave the, the history of why we became a conservative state to maybe a political historian. But electorally, I mean, it, it's clear, and I'm speaking more to, to that conservative definition. Um, you know, we, 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 we elect more Republicans statewide. We, we, we've elected a legislature that is Republican. So that's, that is my... Uh, Definition of conservative. I may be tarring the Republicans with conservatism because I know that there are some really good uh, Republicans that, that are moderates uh, that are in the legislature, and you know, really some of our uh, some of our congressional delegation, you know, are, are moderates. But um, why did we become more conservative? I, I think the, the the whole South became more conservative, and I think it had a lot to do, especially um, with the election of Barack Obama. It was over race. Uh, there's no question. 
in my mind that 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 was that is that is the factor um, that has moved a lot of Republicans into office and moved a lot of Democrats in the South out of office. So you don't agree with my engineer friend, who by the way is black, who says he doesn't think it's so much a black-white issue as it is a red-blue issue? Is that people are just so deeply red and so deeply blue? Why are they red and why are they blue? I would say it's because it's mostly over race. That's, that's kind of my inclination. But he, what he's talking about, he says it's power and money. That if you have power and money, you're red, and if you don't, you're blue. So it's class. He's saying it's class. Yeah, and I think that's something that Bernie Sanders definitely tapped into, you know, in the last presidential election, especially among younger voters, especially among the voters that you kind of talked about as, you know, being – you know, the creative set, the, the young professional, liberal arts type of set. I mean, he, that is one of, that is his main, you know, that was his main message and main talking point is, is it's not fair. You know, what we have created, the system that is in place is not fair and we need to change it because we're not just distributing wealth and we're really not taxing, but we're making it much more difficult for young people to become part of the middle class and become part of, a, you know, even upper middle class. All right, y'all. So um, we had just a little bit more with uh, Michael, and I'm going to pick back up with that on another um, show. But I've got Helena Moreno with me, and this is, um, as I uh, told my uh, readers, uh, would be the second in our series of interviewing the new women who are going to inhabit our city hall for the next four years. And I, for one, am so excited and so thrilled, not only that we have women, because that's one thing, but we have strong, effective, smart women. And this is, this is uh, I believe, is going to be an entirely different ballgame. And um, my husband is the one I quote who says, this is going to be the year of the woman. And, and, and I don't think any of us have any doubt that that's going to be true. And it is true here, even before um, what's been happening with all of the sexual harassment. I mean, all of your races were underway. Cindy Wynn didn't win on that issue. You didn't win on that issue. Latoya didn't win on this, that issue. You all won office and, and Kristen based on people looking at you and saying, these folks are going to get stuff down, mm -hmm. done. They're smart. They, they care. And um, they're going to be committed and they're really going to work for us. So I, you know, what's your vision of this, mm -hmm. of the next four years? How do you view it? And what are you hoping uh, to accomplish, both in your sure. district and for the city? Sure. Uh, well, the good thing is, you know, my district is at large, so it's citywide, which is which is right. great. Uh, first of all, Jean, thank you so much for, for the opportunity to, to be here with you today and, and to talk to uh, your listeners. I, I think you're absolutely right. With with these elections, these municipal elections, the people of New Orleans were looking for individuals that were going to get things done. And they looked at their track records. When you look at the women who have been elected, they looked at Kristen's track record back when she was on the council and the things that she's done afterwards. Uh, for me, uh, I know they definitely took a look at some of the things I did in Baton Rouge, and certainly a lot of those issues affect very much so women and their families, whether it's working on equal pay or whether it was uh, the countless number of bills that I authored to help victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. Uh, took on the NRA uh, a couple of times, you know. So, so they looked at, at someone who wasn't... Uh, 
afraid to take on fights uh, and, and, and win those battles. And, and then they took a look at, at Cindy Wynn as well, someone who's been very active in the New Orleans East community for many years. And so uh, you're right. They took, a, they took a look at individuals who were willing to get things done and who are ready to get to work. And I believe that's the type of city council that we're going to have. Take a look at our at our mayor-elect. Same thing with, with, mm-hmm. uh, with mayor-elect Cantrell. Mayor-elect Cantrell, from the time that she was an advocate in Broadmoor mm-hmm. to her time on the city council, mm-hmm. whether you may like her policies or not, you can't say that she wasn't a hard worker and working every day for the city of New Orleans and its people. I think also another um, criteria that you all meet is independence. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that you came in... Um, kind of a clean slate. You came mm-hmm. out of the media, so mm-hmm. I don't think, and, and the media used to be objective mm-hmm. that the standards for what gets communicated on television now have changed, but um, um, you came out mm-hmm. objective, and so f- folks really didn't know what you stood for, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. you really had a free opportunity to establish who you were, and you did that. Mm-hmm. Um, Kristen Palmer is is known also to be independent, even though she represents a very demanding um, oh, sure. district. She's got the Algiers and the French Quarter. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I ran, yeah. actually, yeah. for that seat many, many years ago uh-huh. in 1990, and it's, a, it's an interesting district. It, West Coast, uh, West uh, side of the river really mm-hmm. dominates it um, demographically, but um, anyway, she she has been a very strong voice. And um, LaToya, I mean, LaToya comes out of the community, um, but she has a very balanced view mm-hmm. of community versus development. She's sure. not, you know, um, a knee-jerk preservationist. She's not a knee-jerk community person. She's very much a community person. But her definition of that embraces mm-hmm you know, more proactive business development-oriented mm-hmm. positions as mm-hmm. well. So y'all are independent. And I'll tell you this, you know, being in the in the legislature for now almost the past eight years, time flies, but uh, – and representing District 93, which is a majority-minority district – really prepared me to move to this next position, which is a, a citywide position. District 93 is a very demanding district, uh, incredibly uh, smart voters who want their representative to be very active, and, and I was. Um, very active when it comes to criminal justice reform, very active when it comes to fairness in the workplace, very active when it comes to accessibility to health care, and they demand their legislator to be someone who is going to fight on those issues that are very important to them. Remember, District 93 is, is Treme, the 7th Ward, uh, all of the French Quarter, all of downtown New Orleans with all of those assets. You've got the mm-hmm. Superdome. You've got uh, part of the port. You've got the convention center. You also have the new UMC. You also have the jail. So I always say, and and I, I very rarely get a lot of pushback on this, that I, I always say that asset-wise, District 93 is actually the most important legislative district in the state of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, 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 like I said, it, a lot of the capital outlay dollars on mm-hmm. our in our state come to District 93. Mm-hmm. Before I was there, Karen was there. So they've always had very – Karen Peterson. So they've always had very strong representation. And so it'll be interesting to see um, how the candidates position themselves who are running for my seat. Qualifying to replace me in the legislature begins in January. I will remain in the legislature until May 6th, which is the day before I get inaugurated. 
And um, and I did that for a reason. I put my resignation in on that day so that District 93 and the New Orleans delegation would never be missing a vote in the legislature, especially mm-hmm. if we go into a special session in mm-hmm. February. Mm-hmm. That's that's going to be incredibly uh, necessary. What are, what are you trying to finish off while you're still in the legislature? Because I know that, um, oh, again, you've been yeah. involved in some of these very, mm-hmm. very hot current mm-hmm. issues of sexual harassment, for example. So actually that is – that. That is one of the main things that I'm working on right now, and uh, I hope that'll be kind of my, um, you know, big hurrah, final farewell type of thing. We uh, have started now reviewing the sexual harassment policies in the Louisiana legislature. When we started to review those, uh, once we saw what was happening in other legislatures, we saw that there are very good human resource policies in the legislature but here's the problem. Those, those policies are only applicable to full-time employees. Legislators are part-time employees. Mm. So therefore, we're governed by our rules, where in the House there are zero rules when it comes to sexual harassment, zero. And on the Senate side, there's a, a, a couple lines that say, you know, no member shall sexual harass anyone else. Like, and that's it. You know, no procedures, no um, reporting procedures, no accountability, no, no accountability at all. Yeah. And so that's what we're working on now. And, and as the chair of the Legislative Women's Caucus, I'm very excited to have our Women's Caucus be the ones who are kind of leading on this and working on the changes. And we have we were going to have uh, actually a committee hearing on this on Friday when we had all the terrible weather in Baton Rouge, so we mm-hmm. had to postpone it. And that will be uh, rescheduled for early January. But mm-hmm. that work is going to be very important. The state uh, as well will be taking a look at the statewide policies for state government. The governor has uh, created a task force of seven people. He'll announce his seven appointees uh, soon. Uh, as to who is going to review the policies and make sure that they are, you know, the best model policies moving forward in the state of Louisiana. So um, how, to what extent do you think what's happening nationally um, is therefore impacting um, uh, our politics in the state? And this is, this is one of the questions that I was just talking with Michael mm-hmm. Bagnaris about. Uh, not Michael Bagnaris. Um, uh, Baychuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were, you know, really looking at uh, how will the Alabama race affect us, of mm-hmm. course. And um, it's very impactful. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, a milestone in many ways. And we I talked, to, I don't know if you heard the very beginning of the interview, but it, that was about what, what is the meaning of mm-hmm. this milestone? What is this milestone? And what will the impact of it be regionally? Because uh, a part of the interview that um, you didn't hear really de- deals with the fact that when I first came here in the early 70s, um, Louisiana was actually one of the most liberal states, mm-hmm. so moderate at least, mm-hmm. in the South. And um, it's really, you know, it just got redder and redder and redder over these years and uh, to the point where now people call it a conservative state. Mm -hmm. That's not what it was back then. So the question is, is there a trend? Is there an opportunity for there to be a more um, nuanced dialogue uh, between the parties in our state? And uh, and can we be in more competition Mm -hmm. between the two parties so that it isn't just a kind of one-party party? party? So... uh, you know, just to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned. First, I want to talk about how um, the impact of women and what their role could now be. This year, we have seen just um, just such a remarkably strong voice come from women on a variety of different ways. 
we had the Women's March. And I'm going to talk about local stuff. So look, take a look at the Women's March that happened here in New Orleans. I, I was participating. Me too. Yeah. So I was actually going to go. I saw you. Yeah, I was yeah. actually going to go to the Women's March in Washington, D.C. until mm-hmm. I was asked to participate in, in the one here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, the, talking to some of the organizers and thinking, and, you know, we thought maybe 1,500 people would show up, maybe 2,000 would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. So when I arrived to speak, first of all, I couldn't believe the crowd. I mean, there, mm-hmm. it was unbelievable. And then when we started marching, all of the other folks that just started lining, joining, joining in. in. And, and, and by the time it was all over, it was estimated anywhere between ten and 15,000 women who showed park. up. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that, was, that was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So you had that. And then obviously uh, we had Emerge start. Emerge is an organization that trains Democratic women to run for office. Emerge finally launched in, in the state of Louisiana. And Louisiana was one of those states that wait is emerge a uh, a, a national or it's local? national emerge mm-hmm. national oh I, I, that's right I had even it. said that in Louisiana they'd never be able to get a chapter going that it would never happen and now we have an emerge chapter and now they're currently recruiting their first class and and going through applications I can also tell you that myself I have never had so many women reach out to me saying that they are now interested in running for office. Now, to me, this is certainly something that's very exciting because in the Louisiana legislature, we continuously are a legislature that has the least amount of women in a legislature, you know, throughout the country. So we're always we're always at the very bottom of the list. We were dead last for a couple years. I think now we're, you know, second or third to to dead last. But we we have about um, 20 women in the Louisiana legislature, and there are 144 members. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we need to, to make up some ground there and, and encourage more women to run. Go yeah. ahead. The other thing, too, I just wanted to mention that I think what's really interesting, too, and if you take a look at studies about why women run, and Rutgers University is really the leader in, in, in doing these studies, is that when women are considering whether or not they're going to run for office, they they um, are a, a lot more risk averse than men are. Um, you know, nothing against you know men, but men, um, are, you know, they they think it's let's let's just get out there. I'm going to run. I'm and I'm going to win. And women are much more cautious in their decisions. What is this going to mean for my family? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is this going to mean um, financially? How am I going to raise money for my campaign? I don't want to ask people for money. And so women actually need a lot more encouragement from other and women mentoring. who are there mm-hmm. who and yeah. mentoring to get them um, to launch. But once they do run for office, their chances are getting elected are just as equal. In fact, sometimes they have an edge over, over their male candidates. Because they work so hard. They do. <laughs> and, and when you have women who are in office, particularly in legislatures, you will find that women introduce more pieces of legislation dealing mm-hmm. with education, really? dealing with family oh, yeah. issues, mm-hmm. dealing with, with um, you know, overall issues that take care of, of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So um, if a woman is running mm-hmm. and she's a Democrat, mm-hmm. is there a crossover opportunity? Yeah. I mean, Look at me. Absolutely. If tell you, me about your – Sure. How, so, how it breaks out. Mm-hmm. So overall uh, with me, I've certainly received uh, a lot of, of crossover support. Uh, from when I was in the uh, running for the legislature or when I even ran for for this most recent council seat received um, I, I don't know the percentages of the number of Republicans who voted for me but I certainly have received 
contributions from folks who are from the Republican Party and, you know, and so have many other candidates in the city of New Orleans and also legislative candidates as well. Take a look at John Bell Edwards. John Bell has has crossover support, too, from there's even a group called Republicans for John Bell. So I think that um, I think it's important that that and I think individuals are doing it, that they are looking uh, beyond party, but but as to what this person is going to do and and what they are going to accomplish, whether it's for the community or the city or the state of Louisiana. You know, we broke off um, uh, from uh, a point of conversation that we started with it. Um, we kind of veered off, and I want to come back to it. Um, again, more about um, sort of your vision mm -hmm. for oh, what yeah. you feel like you can accomplish in your office in New Orleans. and Because mm -hmm. uh, as you said, um, women do uh, introduce legislation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. focus on issues that are important mm -hmm. to education, to mm -hmm. family. Um, and to community, and so um, tell me what you're thinking about. And sure. I, I, I really wasn't that tuned in to the um, uh, races mm -hmm. that much. I mean, I went to a couple of the um, uh, mayoral forums, mm -hmm. which was so abysmal that I couldn't go to anymore. <laughs> I just don't even want to talk about it. It was so horrifying. But um, yeah, tell me what what you're hoping to um, accomplish. Sure. What's on your uh, agenda? So, Jean, one of the reasons why I wanted to run for a citywide position and and leave the legislature is that I have obviously enjoyed working on a lot of policy issues in the legislature, but I also feel that sometimes it was like, you know, beating your head against the wall. You would try to advance issues in the Louisiana legislature. Uh, including some very simple pieces of legislation that you think would would help, you know, whether it's it's victims of domestic violence or or victims of sexual assault or who, or or working on just fair practices in the workplace, things that you would think would be easy and you would get beat. And so that was very frustrating to me and I wanted to to start pushing forward some of these policies and I know that I can get them done here in the city of New Orleans even though I couldn't get them done throughout the state of Louisiana. One of the things that, I, I can tell you this, as the at-large member, what I wanna do is obviously work every day to improve the quality of life of the people of New Orleans. I'll be working on the major issues, like fixing sewage and water board, and, and, and working on making our city a safer city, working on overall efficiencies in City Hall, uh, making sure that you are getting the city services that you, the taxpayer, deserves to be getting. So that's my overall, um, role and job and what I'm going to work every day. But let me just talk about one of the things that, that I couldn't get done legislatively that I am going to get done here in the city of New Orleans. Legislatively, we work so hard that when you are convicted of domestic abuse battery, there is a firearm prohibition. We got that passed in 2014. Eugene can no longer possess a firearm for 10 years. Our next step was to do what other states do, which is once you are under that prohibition, you must turn over your firearm to law enforcement or sell it because that when you're on and, and we did it for a protective order too that's when you need to get the firearms away from people we could not get that past the legislature i mean we were fought on all different angles that was actually the nra didn't oppose that because they viewed it as not a new prohibition the judges association opposed it not our local judges but from other jurisdictions and rural jurisdictions saying oh how much work is this going to take? Procedurally, this is impossible. How are we going to, how are we going to get this done? And I can tell you that some, some sheriffs did not want to do it because they thought it's like, oh, I mean, how much work is this going to be to try to, you know, get people's, collect people's guns? And then if we made it voluntary, 
some sheriffs were saying, well, the sheriffs who are doing it are going to make the sheriffs that don't want to do it look bad. So let's oppose the whole thing. Mm. So, but let me tell you this. So, All around bad reasons. So here in New Orleans, though, because it is not a new law, it's just, it's just enforcing the current prohibition, we can do it here in the city of New Orleans to make sure that those who are under a protective order for family violence have to turn over their firearms. We were working um, a few months ago on a grant to try to move this kind of pilot program along. But I can tell you that uh, Tangibaho Parish, I believe, and I know for sure Lafouche Parish is already doing this. But that's something I'm going to be able to do here in the city of New Orleans that I couldn't accomplish statewide. So it's interesting because uh, one of the questions I asked um, Michael um, Baychuk, uh towards the end of the interview, and that I'll probably pick up and run the rest of that next week, mm-hmm. but I said, to what, ex- to what extent... Um, how do we break through the stalemate in our political positions on the red and the blue side um, and, and try to accomplish, again, a more nuanced dialogue and to try to, I, I don't want to use this expression, but I, I can't think of another <coughs> way to say it, educate people on the other side of, uh, on some of the issues and, 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 and see some movement in position. So in other words, why were you not able to penetrate some of the folks upstate? Hmm. Um, and, and what will it take to open that dialogue up more? Is it, is it doable? And if so, what do we have to do yeah. to, to accomplish, to get people kind of out of their tribes? So y- statewide, you're, you're taking a look at um, a couple big issues where we have not seen a lot of movement um, towards convincing people to go another another way. For example, when it comes to um, what they call Second Amendment rights, and I'm certainly a supporter of the Second Amendment, but I think that if you are um, someone who has been convicted of family violence, someone who has significant mental health care issues, that you should not possess a firearm. And, and you know, there are some others who feel adamantly that your Second Amendment rights are far beyond any other right uh, under the Bill of Rights. And they fight it tooth and nail. And they have the NRA, which is incredibly powerful. And remember, the NRA also ranks legislators. I have an F from the NRA. I think myself and Senator Peterson are the only two legislators with an F from the NRA. That's a proud Exactly, right? So it's like I I earn that badge uh, and I wear it with pride. Uh, so, So first let's start with the lobbyist. Um, NRA is incredibly powerful, so are there? So are the different gun lobby groups that are part of the state. So that's that's a major factor. The other bigger issue where we haven't seen a lot of movement in is also the abortion issue. I know you talk with Michael a little bit about that. I don't get it. It's this, but it's the same thing. Once yeah. again, you have very powerful lobbying groups, including the Family Forum, where legislators are, well, I have a very low rating with the Family Forum too, but <laughs> that where they rank legislators based on their votes. And legislators in particular have convinced themselves that if they are not voting 100% with the NRA or 100% with the Family Forum, that they will not be reelected, that their constituents care so much. So I think the question is, how much do the Louisiana, the people of Louisiana really care about those issues? Or is it just the perception that those in elective office have that if they are not in line with these organizations that the people those, won't, those. won't vote for them? Mm-hmm. 
So I think that's kind of the better analysis that we should look at. Uh, I know I have to let you go in just a couple of minutes because mm-hmm. you've got a, a, a um, community meeting to go to. So um, let me just uh, take a couple of minutes to talk, talk about Helena Moreno and mm-hmm. who she is and where she came from because you're not originally from Louisiana, am I right? Y- you're right. I was born in Jalapa, Veracruz, Mexico. My father is from Mexico, and my mother is American. They met when he received a scholarship to go to the University of Wisconsin. So that's where they met. Uh, they decided to get married. My mother did not know a bit of Spanish, moved to Mexico, did not know another person there except for my dad, moved to Mexico. Yeah. Your mother has um, the same kind of guts that you have. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. So uh, my mother, you know, went to Mexico and, and um, continued to. You know, it never even occurred to me. Moreno is a sure. Spanish name. Absolutely. I, my first, my first, my first language was Spanish. So, uh, you know, went to school in Mexico, um, lived there until I was eight years old. My father wanted better opportunities for our family, so he uh, moved us to Houston where he had a job. We lived in a, a little apartment in a Sharpstown, uh, Houston. It's a, it's in Houston, but it's, 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 it's an area called Sharpstown. We lived there, and, um, you know, my little brother and I at that time, we went to a little public school, and, and that's where, uh, thank goodness for – some really great teachers in that public school who helped me with my my language and my reading and got me up to speed really quickly. Oh, but you must be bilingual then. I am bilingual. Sí, puedo hablar español también, sí. All right. Yeah, so, but, but I'll tell you this. I really struggled for so long trying to get my reading level up to where it needed to wow. be, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until my junior year in high school that it finally leveled out, and it was because my first language was Spanish. Interesting. And so what's really interesting, too, is that, you know, I always t- would tell my friends that I wanted to be a reporter or I wanted to be a, a news anchor because I loved to watch these reporters go and solve people's problems. Like, mm-hmm. I loved it. And uh, and my friends used to make fun of me. They're like, we've heard you read in class. You can barely read in class. <laughs> so it's funny how I ended up having a well, career where all I did was read. Well, so. so what's so interesting about it also is that you did not let that become an impediment. Well, that's and, because and I'll anything, tell you this. it was a challenge that you perceived that you had to overcome, which probably set you along the path of overcoming challenges. Oh, no doubt. Well, my, my parents raised my little brother and I to always be the type of individuals that it's not about um, how many times you fall. It's about how you get up and how you keep moving forward. You know, my mother uh, made me go to a tutor every um, afternoon. I hated it to work on my reading because she knew that I would overcome it, but that I had to, and taught me that I had to work hard to get it done. That reminds yeah. me of the awful classes that my mother sent me to, to study for the SATs, oh, which paid right. off big right. time. Right. Um, it's been a pleasure. It's Thank you, Jean. Appreciate I, it. I really didn't know about that background. I'm glad mm-hmm. I asked that question. Um, I want you to think about coming back here from time to time. That'd be great. Giving us updates, leading us it. down the trail that we need to uh, go down to support what you're doing as you work for us. Thank you, Jean. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. Have Just have a blast and, and do great. Thank, Thank you, you. very it. much for doing that. All right. So we have um, more interesting guests coming up who are going to talk to us about mental health and art. What a combination. And... Um, we have two folks in-house, and since I kind of rushed in here from another place, I'm going to ask them to kind of bring me up to speed, introduce yourselves, and tell me about what you're trying to accomplish. Who wants to go first? Sure. My name is Megan Goldbeck. I'm the Director of Development at NAMI New Orleans. We are the local affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Lisa? 
Um, my name is Lisa Iacono. I have a background in uh, women's wear, fashion design, and now I focus on painting and volunteering with uh, NAMI New Orleans. So and that's a very interesting um, career trail, um, uh, a track that you I, – I would like you guys to use your earphones. We don't get – this is not a big call-in show, but it just kind of keeps you thinking about the fact that we have a big audience out there listening to us. Not just us in this room. I feel very professional, too. <laughs> there you go. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, first of all, let's talk about the event that's coming up, and then we'll, uh, we'll come circle back and, and talk about it at the end of the interview as well. So set me up with that. Great. So uh, it's a satellite show for Prospect New Orleans, and, and Lisa can add a little bit about this. The show runs um, now through February 25th, and Prospect is a really great art experience and pretty much – um, I think there's what twenty or thirty satellites. Or no, it's more it's than huge. That? Okay, it is a wow. hundred and twenty. Wow. Actually, M- Megan Koza um, uh, Mitchell, who uh, oversees the satellite program, told me just two days ago that it's actually a hundred and thirty. Now, which of those are open on a consistent basis and really active is another story. But, yeah, the Prospect Program is huge. I've been talking about it on the show, and um, I'm planning to have satellites on just pretty much every week between now and the end because um, I want everybody to know that this is there's two parts to Prospect. It's all of the work that's been uh, brought from other artists from around the country, and it's very, very interesting work this year because it really ties in with the millennium and uh, not the millennium, our, our, our 300 our tricentennial celebration and all of our cultural influences are African and European and, and uh, South American and Caribbean influences. Um, but it, it's also all about the satellites, which are, um, you know, art venues or institutions or galleries all over the city. Fantastic. And Lisa, our volunteer, was great to get us connected with Prospect as a satellite show and um, our show, which is called Shores of Perception, is really about um, mental health and mental illness and how it relates to art. And we were so fortunate to have uh, about 30 artists connect with us and produce pieces wow. about um, mental illness and what that meant to them. Yeah, we asked um, each artist to just consider their uh relationship with mental health and or mental illness and to interpret that through a piece however loosely or however personally they wanted to and the result was so eclectic when the show yeah. hung and the stories that people uh, chose to share were really moving yeah well I, I think that it's sort of a well-known I, I, I say it's a well-known fact it may actually be a myth but I have the impression that many um, artists do have, among other uh, possible, just like the rest of the population, but maybe just a a slight bit statistically higher uh, rate of bipolar um, disease, for one thing. And and then, of course, I know of artists such as Walter Anderson, who's very famous uh, in this region, who was a schizophrenic and really worked through uh, that with his art. So art actually also is so important to helping people work through their mental issues. And that was one of the loose prompts that we kind of suggested was we don't want artists to feel, we didn't want the artists to feel like they had to come in and tell their uh, history or too many details because some people choose not 
to speak about their illness, and we respect that too. But um, we were hoping that of the artists that we were able to connect with and that were working with us, that even if they didn't have a story that was too direct about a personal experience with mental illness, that they could speak to what making art does for their personal mental health balance, even if it's just something like making art makes me feel good or it makes me feel peace. And um, so there was such a spectrum of ways to interpret this prompt, and it was uh, very positive. uh, One of the things about art is that it... it, um it engages you so much when you're making art. I, I, I'm a sort of a shoulda, woulda, coulda been an artist, and, and as a lot of people who are involved in the arts are, um, but I, I made a lot of art as a, as a youngster, and I still do for that matter. I'm sort of a Sunday artist. But when, when you're working in something creative, your mind, your spirit, everything is totally focused on it, and, and, and all of the other uh, things in your life kind of fall away, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important. Is that something that you've been working through um, more specifically, or is it just um, wonderful that they're doing this in, in support of your efforts? And tell well, me more about your program. Sure. So, you know, we, we do find art to be incredibly therapeutic for people, especially music um, and, and creating all that is really fantastic. You know, we have one in five people who live with a mental illness. That's a lot of people. Is that a, a state a or city nation, or It's a nationwide, national? yeah. One in five. Mm-hmm. And um, that's anywhere from anxiety, depression, and then some of the more severe illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So our program is really fantastic. We work with adults who live with more of the severe mental illnesses, uh, we have a, a psychosocial rehabilitation program, and we do implement some art therapy. There's a lot of skills training and stuff like that, too. But, you know, I, I read an article a couple of years ago about how art can almost be a meditative thing for people. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, focus these days on mindfulness, and I think that's one thing that, you know, professionals are kind of focusing on is, is trying to be mindful and connecting with one's, you know, inner soul. And um, art is just a really great way to do that. And we're very excited to have all these artists share their stories uh, about mental illness because, uh, unfortunately, mental illness has a lot of stigma around it still. And when you can bring something like art into the mix that is such a huge part of our city and our culture, it really shines the light on the topic. Because, um, like I said, one in five people, it's not like it's some obscure illness that right. no one knows of. And so considering that it's one in five, that means that there are a lot of people who may be totally functional, who are living their lives and working with others um, and, and have an underlying issue that other people may or may not be aware of. And it also means that there's a real sort of sliding scale of of degrees of of mental illness. So there may be people who are slightly anxious, and then there are people who are so anxious that they can actually be crippled by their anxiety. Oh, definitely. Right? And then, um, you know, again, even bipolar. My father was a severe bipolar, and, um, I mean, there were months and months when he didn't leave the house and when he was suicidal. And my sister and I both have a little bit of bipolar, but we're functional. We've never had that level of problem. So uh, it's... it's um, 
that the differentiation is important, but I think that for, for to a great extent, people do not think about um, recognizing the need in others that is part of a, a, a mental issue. And so one of the things I've always been concerned about, and every time you hear about one of these mass murders and, and it turns out the person had a mental illness and people around him sort of, him or her, sort of suspected that there was an issue, but they didn't do anything. They didn't, maybe they tried. I know in some cases I can recall that there were attempts to help somebody that didn't work out. What can we, how can we do a better job of recognizing, whether it's on a minor level or, or, or a much more serious level, sure. the, the mental struggles that some people are having. Well, I'll tell you, most people who live with a mental illness, any kind of mental illness, are actually more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrator of violence. I, I always like to tell people that. Cause, That's so true. You yeah. know, there's a lot of... when. A horrible tragic event like that occurs a mass shooting there's a lot of oh my gosh he's this and that and um a lot of doom and gloom and it stigmatizes those people who who you know aren't violent and and most of them are not so um but i, I think the thing that we need to do as a community is educate ourselves as with anything um, mental illness is very treatable it is a manageable chronic condition just like diabetes or heart disease uh, it's definitely not a death sentence. We actually have a program called Mental Health First Aid Training. It's an international um, course that we offer, and you can get some information on our website, which is NAMINEWORLEANS.org. Um, and it's a great eight-hour training to show you signs and symptoms of someone who might be suicidal. That sounds terrific. It really is. There was and one today. And it's online. Yeah. You said, what, mm -hmm. was, what was today? Oh, well, We the, had the, one today, yeah. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I've been running yeah. so hard, I didn't know. <laughs> well, we actually have them um, quite frequently, at least once or twice a month. We've got wow. some great grant funding for it, so it's incredibly affordable for people. But, again, it shows you signs and symptoms of what to do if someone might be in a mental health crisis, suicidal, substance abuse issue, or if you're walking down the street and, and someone's having a panic attack, how to get them that initial first aid um, before a professional can step and, in. And, and that's available online, or you have to go it's take a, the it's class? It's an eight-hour course that you would take that mm -hmm. we offer at NAMI New Orleans. Um, we offer Is there an online version for people who can't? There's not an online version. What I would suggest if you cannot do the eight-hour course is take some time to go to NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I.org. And you can learn the signs and symptoms of mental illness, um, sleeping a lot, weight loss, you know, depression, thoughts of suicide, that kind of thing. So you can educate yourself a little bit online. But sometimes it takes kind of a sixth sense to realize that oh, somebody's sure. going through that because they don't people don't necessarily want you to know that they have a problem and so they they um, uh, keep it to themselves I, 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 I want to make sure that we have time to talk about some of the artists who have committed to helping this so um, let me let me turn uh, back over to you and, and, and yeah share with me just a little bit about some of the work that sure um we have such a broad range of people who contributed, Everybody, uh, everyone from um, uh, 
An this attorney. This is beautiful stuff. I'm looking at pictures of it, y'all. An attorney with severe bipolar disorder. Is this online? Mm-hmm. Is this on your website? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's Carol Pulitzer there on the top. Oh, I know. And Carol. then uh, oh, that's how I got you. Yeah. <laughs> and then below her is uh, a piece by Ken Cox, who actually mm-hmm. did all the artwork on the outside of Turkey and the Wolf, our uh, new famous sandwich shop in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got everything from graffiti based art to uh, fine art, drawing, photography, and each artist is giving 50% of their uh, sale of their piece to NAMI New Orleans. Well, that's interesting. I I, want to say that I I, um, admire you for making sure that the artist gets something out of it, too, because a lot of us do um, artist um, auctions, and the artist does not get, and uh, so I'm I'm glad to see that. Sandra Pulitzer's, wow. Yes. That's interesting. She has... Different from anything I've seen of hers. She has two pieces in the show, actually, and they're both beautiful. And Paul Costello's photogram. This is very interesting looking. Black and white. Gorgeous. prints made in a dark room by shining light on an item. Mm -hmm. And his statement about mental illness is sweet because he kind of compares his experience in the dark room to what it can be like to go through therapy and even mentions that sometimes chemicals are necessary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Jana uh, Karadidi, a pigtailed woman child. That's a great piece. It is is also very large and striking in person. It's amazing. Uh, I, I think it's important for people to go to the site uh, is this on your website? Yes, it is on our website, but you can see the work live at High Volt um, on Sophie B. Wright Place. Right where magazine splits. Right kind of where magazine splits. It's a really great uh, establishment, and they've let us uh, keep the art there through the, the show, or through February 25th. Terrific. Uh, and I'm looking, yeah, and Nikki's work, too. Um, everything is fine. Right. Says the banner behind the plane flying in the sky. And underneath, there's somebody who's not so happy. There's somebody. <laughs> this <laughs> seems to be a last what, ma- what made you get involved in this? Um, uh, I actually had an uncle, my father's only brother, who was severely schizophrenic. And mm-hmm. a couple years ago, when I started to pursue my own uh mental health issues that I was having, I, because of my therapy and how wonderful the care is that I have, was looking into a lot of our family history and um, learning the difference between trait disorders and state disorders, and then uh, learning about my... Trait disorders and state disorders. Yes, so Mm -hmm. state disorder is something that comes and goes, and a trait disorder is something that is always kind of there. There. Now, mm-hmm. I am not a doctor, and I probably shouldn't say that, but that's kind of how I have interpreted it through my therapy. It's interesting, yeah. But I think that when I see my uncle had care, but when I see people who don't have care, I think that could have been my uncle. He could have ended up in jail or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, he did pass away when he was 48. It was uh, The disease was very hard on his body. But um, You see, that's the same thing happened with my dad. He died at 59. And it was really traumatic for everybody in the family. So um, I I, I so much appreciate what you all are doing. And um, this is time. (laughs) It's the – I'm going to hear the drums in a minute telling me I'm I'm out. But um, uh, once again, it's at the High Vault. High Vault Cafe in New Orleans. 
And if you want some more information, you can visit NAMINEWORLEANS.org or call us at 504-896-2345. And the beauty part is that it's up until February 25th, which is the length of time that Prospect is, is running in the city. Thank you guys so Thank much you. for coming. Thank you. We're so great. kind of chilly day. Thank you for and, having um, us. And enjoy the show through February. Thank, Thank you. you very much for being with us. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. I'll be with you next week, same time, 6 o'clock on WBOK. Thank you.